Hey, Mac, when does deer season start? Well, if you want the best deer herd possible, Lanny, you need to start right now. Right now. That's, That's why right. we're starting our promotion. I mean, we've got a deer season starts now promotion on plantbiologic.com where you can pick up our game changer soybeans, our forage soybeans, and our spring protein peas. While you're there, you might as well go ahead and pick up some brassicas like our final forage and winter bowls. Yeah, stock up for the cool season planting right now. Listeners to the GK Podcast, if you use coupon code GKPOD, you can save an additional 10% off our entire selection of warm season, cool season, and clover food plot seed. Get started today and visit plantbiologic.com for an unforgettable fall. Hi, I'm Jeff Foxworthy, and welcome to Gamekeeper Podcast. If you want to learn more about farming for wildlife and habitat management, then, buddy, you are in the right place. Join the Gamekeeper crew direct from Mossy Oak Land Enhancement Studio as they discuss the latest wildlife and habitat management practices, news, and, of course, hunting. There's no telling what you'll learn, but I'm going to tell you, I bet it's interesting. Enjoy. We're live in three, two, one. All right, guys. Well, that only took 14 minutes to get the audio started, but welcome to West Point, Mississippi, home of Mossy Oak Brand Camo, the Gamekeeper Studios. We're all excited because turkey season is right around the corner. We have flipped the page, so to speak. It is time. And uh, I busted out a mouth call on the way to work this morning. Mm. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm ready. Use your Merlin bird ID. Yeah, you know. It gets earlier every year. It's just like Christmas lights come up earlier and earlier every year. Yeah, the days are getting a little longer. Feels good in the morning. Well, the whole idea of like burning and nesting, just uh, predator nest control, just kind of lets it get started. It's a little turkey bit time. That's right. It's time to talk. Yeah, about I, I saw a plume of a plume of smoke on my way home uh, over the Did public you? lands. So oh, that, nice. I know nice. things are getting fired up. No pun intended. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah we should have intended that pun. That's that, pretty good. There, would have been good. So. Yeah. Well, so today we, we've got, I, I'm going to say he's probably our most popular gig. I know we absolutely love having him. Absolutely. And uh, uh, Dr. Michael Chamberlain, he, he's in the house. There he is on right there on Zoom. And uh, somewhere in that we've also, if well, people will listen, you will hear Toxie's voice. You will. He, <laughs> you will you will he, he's somewhere in the ethernet yeah. he won't tell us where there's something he's in an undisclosed location yeah and closing it, out so that chinese balloon could have been looking for where he is that, yeah, they wouldn't have found him i'm just telling you i'm in the bossy old white house bunker that's right secure and undisclosed as as uh i could show i'm looking at a sign it says the porch of no worries so y'all know right where i am i know where that yeah, is no doubt about it mm. that's a good spot to be in so mike are, you're not on the porch of no worries are you where are you in the office of a lot to do yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah i am not on the porch i am sitting at my desk working feverishly or trying to uh busy time of year sure as turkey season approaches, I'm sure you're a popular guy. Everybody's wanting interviews and 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 whatnot. But uh, so for the what, what is your what what it, what what message are you trying to get out here right before turkey season, to guys? Is there one or two main points that you want to try to communicate to the listeners? Oh, appreciate the opportunity to to chase the bird and um, slow down. That's that's what I tell yeah. people. There you go. I'm already caught up in the go 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 go. It'll it's almost here. It's almost here. It's almost here. And before you know, it'll be over with. And 
We'll be at the end of uh, of May thinking, I wish it was turkey season still, but it's not. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. It happens every year. Yep. So, it yeah, I learned from I'll echo, I'll echo that. He said, slow down. I was, you know, my my word that screams in my ear every year more and more and more is patience. And, uh, you know, you go out there on a day when it's not happening and, you know, people are so com- almost obsessive about wanting to kill one and stuff. And it's just kind of sad. Just, man, just be so grateful you're out in the woods. I mean, I'm, where I am, I'm, you know, it's a screen porch, so. I can hear birds singing, and quite honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if I saw some turkeys in a minute uh, where I'm looking. And shoot, it doesn't get any better than that. Just don't forget the whole church in the spring woods. It's the time Dang of rebirth God. for everything. And man. Uh, man, do not miss the chance because if you do that in the spring, you hadn't you hadn't missed out. Turkeys are no turkeys. It's now look, I'm the most depressed guy in the world when they're not gobbling, but. Um, just don't miss the chance to enjoy the spring, like Doc said. Slow down a little bit. Yeah, that, that's great advice. So, well, guys, let's move this thing along. Uh, what we always talk about uh, blood on the biologic. Any youth hunters that y'all are aware of? And I think there's, I think there's one. Yeah, who wants to tell that one? So, Taxi, you want to tell what you know? So, yeah, congratulations goes to my granddaughter, Abby Stubbs, that killed her first deer, six years old. It was, you know, unexpected a little bit. I didn't know she was quite so ready. She'd been asking to go, asking to go, asking to go. And she'd actually been the day before and uh, shot at one and missed. And so instead of getting discouraged, uh, she asked to practice some more. And so it was kind of a quick, cool story. She was here in the front yard. And Vandy um, took a one of these old block targets and put a big piece of paper up on it and put it about 50 yards from there. And got her settled where she had a rest and everything. And he had drew like a black, little bit, about the size of a quarter, maybe a little bit bigger, and uh, with a Sharpie right in the middle. So give her something to aim for. So she fires the first one. And he's looking in binoculars. He's like, oh, you know, kind of trying to sugarcoat it. I, you know, I think you didn't touch anything. Uh, maybe it's on the edge, but I don't see anything. Let's try another one. You probably just flinched. So he puts a bullet in. She shoots again. And he's like, uh, maybe, we, maybe we, we need to go down there and see. Maybe it's on the edge of the target to know which way you're off. And they walk down to the target, and she's keyholed two perfect shots right through the middle. That's why he couldn't see them. No, oh, wow. Because they oh, were in that black. Nice. So that's a cool. And so subsequently, she goes out. And uh, that afternoon, late, I mean, late, uh, I got the text from Bandy, and he said, you know, He's on the ground in just a few minutes later. And uh, honestly, uh, Rob was with him. Oh, nice. And yeah, so he didn't record it like for video. He's got it, though. It was just on his camera. He went to try to take pictures. And she was, I mean, she got the blood on her face. She got the whole routine. <laughs> she was so proud of herself, you know, ready to do it again. And, uh, you know, talked about what it meant and everything, too, even at six years old. So, uh, yeah, that's that's a pretty cool thing when it's your First grandchild, uh, you know, and especially for Vandy. I think Vandy's on cloud nine as much as she is. Oh, yeah. No doubt about it. Well, congratulations to Evie and Sarah Francis and Vandy. That's awesome. It really is. And, and of then, course, you, Toxie. Well, it, you know, to hear Vandy tell his side, it was, it was a heck of a hunch. Oh, so, yeah. So, Well, she's in a shooting house that, that sits there that, um, 
you know, it's actually where we kind of usually say for daddy and he hadn't been able to have a go this year. But um, it's kind of high, even for him, I have to put like three boat cushions in the chair for him to sit on to be able to shoot out of. It's just for whatever reason, a little bit too high. It's not too bad for me, but, you know, same for her. I think she had to get in his lap and then on cushions on top of that to be able to be high enough to see. So it took some doing, uh, mm. but they pulled it off. I tell you what, the blood on the ball has kind of morphed into a like the a chance to give shout outs to first timers. Oh man, it's and, all about the kids. I do, really and I is. get a lot of feedback from people going, "My yeah. kid just beamed when they heard their name." Yeah, I, we're always looking too. I yeah, mean, I, I see one, I take a screenshot. So yeah, um, let us know too. We're yeah. proud to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's awesome. That's great. Well, Mike, uh, following you on uh, at the Wild Turkey Doc, looked like you took some young people. And uh looked like they had a good time and some success this season. I did. I did. Uh, I entertained two of Austin's very closest friends um, at our camp in Louisiana. And actually one of the Garrett, uh, his best friend, was was there. He had never killed a deer. And um, I took him and kind of sat with him. And the other young man, Michael, has hunted a little bit. And, and um First afternoon we were there, uh, I found this old 25-06 that Austin shot his first deer with. And there were four shells that we, we could find. So we he shot once on the range, and we had three left over. Mm. And um, Doe comes out right at dark, and she gets she gets straight, and he, he center punches her with a perfect shot. She never makes it out of the plot. And... We, uh, you know, of course, we're high-fiving and hugging and having a good time. And so that was his first deer. And lo and behold, uh, two days later, um, a nice shooter eight-point came out. And same 25-06. Um, we're down to, down to two bullets now. That's all that's left. He, he made a perfect shot on this, on this eight-point. And it was uh, about five minutes later, the other young man, Michael, shot a a really nice doe. So it was a, it was a, it was a pretty rewarding couple of days there. That's awesome. Very emotional, but we, we had a good time. I bet so. Therapeutic. I mean, I got chill bumps, doc. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it is. You got some stuff going on. Lanny, you're looking at me like, I'm not going to enjoy what you're about to go and do. What What is it? I mean, it's the blood on the biologic section uh, segment. I would say there is a little news. Oh yeah. The, I heard that there was a one of our actually one of our native nurseries customers, Dan Donald, uh killed a a a a, a really nice eight point, a really heavy old eight point, and he's a podcast listener and he thinks it's pork chop. So I've got a picture of it right here. How long has it been since you've seen Pork Chop? Yeah, well, so I was looking back in my phone, and uh-huh. I I had photos of him in uh, late November, mm. and he disappeared. And he's not an eight; he's an eleven. So, oh, so uh, is that kickers? It, 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 no, it's not kickers. It's just times. But to bring let everybody up speed, I've had a relationship with a deer for three years, yeah. and I'm calling Pork Chop. And I think he was about four years old when I first saw him, and he was just he was just he was just a big fat deer yeah. he didn't have really big antlers but he had really I, and he could have been going downhill but he was definitely mature well i've got a picture of him right here this one there was harvested on december 6th so yeah. it's kind of in line with your time frame and on the hoof he was a 220 pounds so, yeah, so let's pass well, it on down there and see if this is pork chop well yeah, let so. me see 
so Dan ordered trees, and I put two and two together and figured out that he was close to Bobby. Yeah. That is not pork chop. You oh, can I get the horns? <laughs> <laughs> well, Dan not. came by here yesterday, and he's he's obviously over there in your neighbor, and this is a, a fine eight point, so congratulations on that. And we just wanted to see if... You know, you might have recognized. Yeah, no, that's, chop. A, that's awesome. So, uh, so pork chop still no, remains. That's not pork chop. That's vine of sausage. I remember. <laughs> that right there, so. Well, I'll tell Dan. All right. Well, let's let's turn this around. We got Mike Chamberlain, and, and we need to be good stewards of his time. And uh, Mike, we're so happy that you're here. We do. We look. You're just like family. We like to cut up when we're around you, and. Uh, uh, I, you know what? I, I just I really can't see your reaction here. I can't tell if <laughs> what, what's going on there. But we want to turn our conversation toward turkeys. And as this season is, you know, right now there's just we're just so excited when you look on social media. So many people are talking about nest predators and, and putting out uh, you know traps and they're burning and all that. And it's from from a researcher and a guy who's dedicated his life to wild turkeys. You got to be proud of all this that that this groundswell that's going on. And what else can a guy do if he, from where you're sitting there in in Georgia from your office? What what else? What do guys need to be thinking about? And I want to specifically ask: Is there something we don't need to be doing? Well, I mean, I would say if if you want to do something, identify what that something might be for you in your situation, whether it's trapping predators or improving habitat or the prescribed burning, planning, um, wise, sustainable harvest. I mean, you name it. Um, I got to ask this actually earlier today on another podcast is, you know, what, what's the take home and, and the take home to me is figure out how you can contribute in whatever small way that is and do it and be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. And the the groundswell that I see is, is awesome. I mean, I was telling this person, there's more research going on for wild turkeys now than at any time in my career. Even back in the 80s and early 90s, the heyday of the, uh, you know, the, the true pioneers were active during that time in the research world and now there's more research by far than there was then and that's that's really i mean to me it just speaks volumes in two ways one that people and agencies realize that there are concerns with turkeys and that we need to do a better job in understanding the issues facing the bird but but more importantly that agencies and groups, conservation groups, and donors, landowners, see the relevance in this bird and prioritize it enough to put the kind of money that's being spent now Mm -hmm. into science. That's something that's I have not seen since I was a graduate student, and I'm 51 years old, and I've been doing this a long time. So that, to me, is, is, is something that makes me smile, although it it's predicated on the fact that we have issues facing this bird, but the fact that that we're prioritizing the bird as we are gives me hope that we'll we'll right the ship and round the corner and and we'll fifty years from now we'll have sustainable populations of birds and we'll be able to hunt them and our grandkids will be able to hunt them and so on and so forth. Amen. Yeah. 
Yeah, that, that that's so exciting to hear. And then it seems like states are starting to kind of change some of their regulations a little bit, a little modification going yeah. on here and there. And, yeah. And uh, so all, all all that just kind of adds up and is just is all trending in a really good direction. Yeah, I, I just see that there's so much attention being paid to wild turkeys now that maybe I just wasn't paying attention, but I didn't. You know, pre-COVID, I didn't see people talking about turkeys in the summer or the fall. Uh, turkeys conversations were now February, March, April, May, and then and then you you kind of saw turkeys just kind of fall off the radar screen. That was my perception, and now it's easy to strike up a conversation about turkeys twelve months a year in almost any forum because people that are thinking about the bird or thinking about the bird all year and not just during the spring. And that, that to me is a real positive. Yeah. Yeah, it sure is. Toxie, I know you hear, you, you hear all this as well and you're really plugged into the Turkey world, but what's your takeaway on. I mean, not as much as doc, nobody probably as much. Um, he's at the very top if there are others. Um, but listen to his comments. I, one thing I feel really proud of is because, you know, this is maybe, I don't know, 15 or plus years of a concerted effort by us as a brand uh, to make this a priority and make caring for your wildlife a 52-week, 12-month affair. And actually to the point where caring for the wildlife and taking care of your place is, you know, a sport almost and a pastime, not just like something you do to shoot more game. and the reason I was getting to that is like one of the things, two, two thoughts popped into my mind as I was listening to Doc. One was the stuff that's happening even with us, you know, and, you know, the state of Mississippi is much improved. I mean, I think he will tell you there, there's a lot of rays of light in the last year on Turkey Net's success that people were getting pretty dark feeling about. But like in our situation, it didn't happen overnight. We've been doing this and doing this and doing this. And like we talked about some of our best friends in the wildlife biology world is you, there's no big one hit wonder burn. And next year you have a lot of turkeys or trap and all of a sudden it's going to rain pulps. It's just that continued, um, you know, that continued emphasis, the continued work uh, year over year over year that turns the tide, even in managing deer and getting them bigger and having better genetics and all the things. It is a process. And so what I feel like is happening due to all the work of people like him led by him. And I feel like we've had a hand in it too is, is now it's part of the process. It didn't used to be, as he mentioned, it used to be turkey season is over, turn your attention to something else. And it was all results driven, just like the deer. It was only about what they scored, you know, and what were my trophy, uh, you know, patterning a whitetail or my trophy patterning techniques and all those things. And not to say that isn't going on today, not to say that we don't enjoy uh, killing turkeys during turkey season, but everybody understands there's such a broad awakening, awakening of taking care of them is the only way we're going to keep having the quality. And B, that's A, and B is you you wake up and learn that taking care of them is even more fun than killing them. And to me, that's when we've actually arrived and we are deserving of this privilege to hunt. Um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, and you can't just sit here and preach to people. I know people think I sound preachy sometimes, but I just implore people to find that it's such a better life than just worried about, you know, bragging on how many you killed or something. 
it's so empty. And you know what? The next year, it'll be even worse on you. So uh, I thought about that. And the thing that popped in my head was one, not overnight. It's been a long process. And I do really like where we are. <clears throat> and the other thing is also, I would say, we're, we're, not, we're realizing we have to pull together that we can't be all divided out. We can't have organizations pointing fingers at other organizations or people complaining. You know, it's clear that Turkey people that love turkeys have got to pull together and the leadership has to come from the very best researchers. Cause that's the, that's the information, you know, that has to be the tip of the broadhead. So that was one thought. Other thought jumped in my mind. It's long kind of the same lines. He talked about all the people involved in helping affect their own turkey populations and that again is the gamekeeper way y'all hear me say it all the time what i what i wish for all this and you know maybe someday when i'm gone what we leave behind is that everybody knows that they can participate in conservation and you know the word jumped in my mind listening to doc saying don't compare what can kill the enthusiasm and the love for doing the work that you do is you look around your neighbor's got twice as much land and more resources and he's trapping more and he's killing more and he's making a bigger difference don't even dare compare what you're doing just love it for the joy of doing if you can affect one think about the miracle of one turkey hatch if you could affect one poult that won the hatch you should feel great don't compare yourself to someone else and go out there and live that life of abundance by giving back to nature. So those are, anyway, I'll sum it up in those two. Don't compare and not overnight. Those are my two thoughts. Wow. Yeah, that's I good. like it. Mm -hmm. hey, so while we're here, Lanny, um, and we've got the good doctor with us, why don't you talk about the, 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 this website that you've been working on? Yeah, super excited. Uh, Dr. Chamberlain actually started, uh, the, you know, developing a place to to publish his work and to influence consumer uh consumer use you know what hunters and guys are out there doing so uh super proud to uh be working with him on that now and looking forward to telling more people about it in the future but it is uh the wild turkey lab.com so yeah mike can you tell us from from where you sit there your what the vision of this thing is and and, and how it came to be this started about a year maybe almost two years ago i I wanted to try to develop a website that would be that would function in a number of ways. One would be kind of a central repository for the work that I've done. Um, it would also be a place that someone could go to access all of the the information that I've posted through my social media accounts at one you know one stop shop, if you will. I also wanted to have a place that I could that I could post informational videos about things that may be interesting to people that that love turkeys um, and everything in between. I, I wanted it to kind of serve as a one stop shop for people that wanted to to at least look at the science that I've done on turkeys and be able to digest it very easily. So I reached out to a web developer. I used some, some funding that I have through an endowment here at the university. And we kind of started piecing this together. And I realized that it, it, it takes a lot of effort and it takes money and it takes time to, to do this. And that had me 
through conversations, obviously with, with you guys, um, that had me kind of broach this idea where we could partner here and, and develop a, a website that, that carries the Mossy Oak brand that is a true repository for turkey science, which will now include historical um, pieces of science from, from researchers long before myself. Uh, as we develop the site, you basically can see the full history of the of how research has has worked on this bird, where we started, where we've been, where we are now. Uh, and I'm really excited about it. I'm, I'm hoping that people will will be able to go to the site and spend time learning more about what they already know or learning information about things they really had no idea even functioned or existed in, in wild turkey populations. And, and I'm also hoping it's going to be a way for people to learn more about things that maybe they, their interest has been peaked a little bit. Maybe they saw a social media post about a topic and they want to go and, and learn more about that topic, whether it's management or, um, or predation or genetics or reproduction or whatever it is this site would serve as a as a conduit for people to be more engaged with the science in a way where it's very easily understandable and digestible so that that's kind of my vision for it and it's going to be constantly updated from what i understand so um, i mean as new information is as comes to light it should it'll be posted and be available for guys to uh, do their own read through i guess yes yeah the idea is to have it constantly updated where as as content are delivered through my platforms and other your platforms that pertain to science and, and my work, that it constantly updates the site to where it's real time, where information that is, for, you know, for instance, I get paid to write journal articles and publish in scientific outlets, but I'm passionate about taking that science and explaining what it actually means to the people that matter, which are turkey hunters and land managers and landowners who are the future of this bird. So nobody is, is going to read these scientific articles, but if they could read a very short summary of what the science showed, and then more importantly, what it means to them, and this is constantly yes. updated, then the science becomes it becomes relevant and it becomes engaging to them because they can they can tap into it at any time and it makes sense. Hmm. Yeah, that's all. So the name of the website is uh, WildTurkeyLab.com, and, and it'll yeah. it's going to launch here uh, yeah. this week. Yeah, there'll be some announcements at NWTF. We're going to be following Dr. Mike in his in a lot of his research and a lot of his studies. So look for a lot of you know in the field information from him like i said and supposed to be aggregated for his social media accounts too so super excited about tagging along in the field and documenting some stuff and getting it out there for everybody so mike i'm going to implore on you to really lean hard on lanny from about march 15th or 20th uh you're you know, killing me you're that, killing you, me you know this killing through me. mid-april please <laughs> lean on him hard right in there make him make him get this done mike he's trying to keep me out of the dummy line so uh <laughs> 
I, I always have my work done before March 15th. Ah, uh, yeah. Your work's <laughs> never done. So, look, okay, all that's great. And that, we're, it's very exciting. But we want to talk turkey hunting with, yeah. with Absolutely. So, I'm going to throw out the first little comment. I want to create a scenario, Mike. Imagine the first part of turkey season. You're sitting somewhere in Georgia. Some birds have flown down. You've yelped at them. All of a sudden, oh, my God, here they come. And they come over the rise, and there's three. And one of them is strutting. One of them kind of struts Wants a little to. bit. Yeah. And, and one of them doesn't strut. They all look identical, though, like they're probably out of the same hatch. Oh, what bird are you going to focus on and concentrate on? And how is that different than what you would have done, say, 10 years ago? I would shoot the bird that wasn't strutting and wasn't gobbling. And the reason I would do that is because now, I'm, this is predicated on this 30-second snapshot that these birds come over the hill and I have 30 seconds to evaluate who's who. But if clearly there's one bird that's strutting and the other birds are not, then he is very likely the dominant bird in that group. He's socially dominant to the other two birds. If there's a bird that's clearly an outcast that is not strutting, he's not displaying at all, uh, very likely isn't gobbling either, then that's the bird I'm going to target, um, at least at the onset of the season, because at least in my mind, that that ensures that that dominant bird survives another day. Now, that's predicated on the notion that, you know, if, if the season, if we're at the end of the season and uh, that scenario played out, then it very likely wouldn't matter which bird was removed. And I would take the shot that was the cleanest, you know, the cleanest, most ethical shot that would result in the bird dying as quickly as possible. So it really depends on the timing of the hunt to, to answer your question. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the reason I asked the question, Mike, is, I, you know, from, uh, you know, I'm doing a lot of research. I'm listening to you in a lot of different platforms and reading. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about that early in the season, messing up. You, you've discussed it here. The pecking yeah, order can get out of whack and it takes a few days for, or we don't know how long it, to get reestablished. To, to reestablish. So I think that's one of the reasons. I, I mean, that's why I asked that question to understand in your mind which one of those you would try to target. There's uncertainty. We don't understand how that works. We we don't understand. Well, first of all, it it may not matter at all. That that's a possibility, but the science suggests that it does. And therefore, if given the chance, I would err on the side of what we do know. And what we do know is that dominance matters. Dominant toms breed more hens than non-dominant toms. So most pop poults in a population are coming from dominant toms. And if I was in a situation, and, and let's, this is my philosophy, and I'm not trying to convince someone else to have it, but I personally, I do not care what the beard length is. I do not care what mm -hmm. the spur length is. If three toms walk up there, and one of them dies, to me, it's irrelevant how big he is, how strong he is. I don't care. Right. I just don't care. I, the hunt has come to a culmination that is what we're after. That's why we're there. It's part of who we are. And 
I'm successful and and I can enjoy the bird and and go on. So it doesn't matter that those those intangible things that that some people pay attention to, I just don't anymore. And I did when I was younger. But as I've evolved as a hunter, I've realized that in the grand scheme of life, none of that matters. Yep. When you're when you're all when you're dead and gone and your hunting career is over, nobody's going to give a damn how many inch and a half spurs you have on your lanyard. You're not going to to sit there in retirement when you're unable to do this and think back about the biggest birds you ever killed. I just don't, I don't catch myself doing that. What I catch myself reflecting on are the days that it was, that it worked out, the, the birds that were the toughest to kill, the birds that exemplified the experience. They, they came from a long distance. They, uh, they tried the backdoor route and I was able to get turned on them. I, I never sit and reflect on, do you remember that bird you shot in Virginia that day that had that paintbrush of a beard? I don't even think about that anymore. I think about all of the other things that go into to hunting the bird successfully and spur length and beard length don't matter. So to me, if I thought there was a chance that taking that bird that doesn't appear to be the dominant guy could matter. Not that it does, but it could. Then that's my personal decision to take mm. that bird. That's good. So, yeah. Dudley, uh, have you got a question? Now, I, I think it's just interesting how you have to be so careful about what you say because, of, you know, so many people have their eyes and ears on on what you say. And uh, you're you're using facts, but you're also using logic to, to help push your help push your decision making progress. And I think that's the only way to go. You know, somebody may have a little bit different opinion, but Hey, that's okay. We're, we're all in it for the same. There are even people in, in the research community that disagree strongly with me and that's fine. Um, there, there are people that will say, well, there's, there's no evidence that any of this matters. And I just, I disagree with that. I can show you evidence that dominance hierarchies matter or they would not be in place. That's the reality. I mean, birds, animals with dominance hierarchies have those hierarchies because they matter and they affect their entire lives. So to me, it's nonsensical to think it doesn't matter who you kill. The question becomes, does it matter when you kill them and what is the magnitude of the effect? If the magnitude of the effect is really slight, then it doesn't matter. If the magnitude of effect is significant, then we need to understand it. And that's, you know, that's kind of my take home is, you know, if you disagree with the logic, that's fine. You don't have to use the logic. But if you carefully read the science about other species that function like turkeys, the logic is quite clear that it matters. And that's why that's why there's so much research ongoing and 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 there's research going on in states where where they're making you know regulations changes to see if it matters. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe the maybe if you only harvest a small percentage of toms, it makes no difference when you kill them and who they right. are. And, and that's but again, we need the science to be able to lean on. And I may be proven wrong down the road. And if so, hey, I'm I'll I'll eat crow, but. I'm not the first person 
to discuss this. There were researchers years and years ago that discussed this, these whole, uh, this whole notion of dominance behind doors in meetings 30 and 40 years ago, and they knew that it mattered. They talked openly about it mattering. I didn't just pull this stuff out of the air. It's been written for decades. And that's part of why I want to use this web platform as a way to show people what's been done on this bird, because there are people that came well before me that have forgotten as much about turkeys as I know. There are, there are people that that their contribution and their dedication is why I get to do what I do for a job. And frankly, their dedication is is in a large part why why we get to hunt this bird. And I really want people to be able to see the information that they put out there years ago and to understand the fight they went through to restore wild turkeys and the science that they did years ago, because quite frankly, a lot of it is the same science that we're publishing now. It's not saying anything differently. Uh, it's just that if it was conducted in 1965, it's not it's not available in, in many ways. And nobody is posting information from 1965 on Instagram or on Twitter. So I think having a forum where people could go back and, and read, you know, short pieces, you know, here's what they did and here's what they found. I think that would be impactful to people because they could they could understand mentally where we've been and how some of the things that are being discussed now are not new discussions. Those are discussions that have been had for decades. It's just now that people are seeing problems with this bird. Now the discussions are, are resurfacing again. And because of social media, there's so much everybody can communicate, everybody can lend an opinion. And back when George Wright and George Hurst and Larry Van Gilder and some of these guys, Lovett Williams, were doing their work, this didn't exist. They could not disseminate their information like we mm -hmm. do now. And that's a, that, that's a huge difference in, in how we function today versus how they functioned when we were learning what we currently learn, what we know about turkeys in a lot of ways. So, uh, Toxie, uh, I, I'm scared we're going to lose you at some point. Is, did you have a question you wanted to ask? Well, I want to make sure we give you a chance to ask, Mike, or if you just want to listen in. I've been listening in. I always try to shut up and listen to him when he's on air. But every time he speaks, it makes me think of things to either reinforce what he's saying or it triggers a question I have. And so I thought of one, especially, you know, one thing I think he would agree, if you get around a bunch of turkey hunters, researchers or not, Everybody has their own theories, and theories are quite are not proven yet. Um, but you know, everybody's always got these theories here, there, and yonder. In fact, I always tip my hat first to Dr. George Hurst because he was the first true, like, pioneer researcher that we had, and Daddy too had a relationship with. And based on what he was finding in research, it changed my mind versus you know all the what the old timers I was around always said about stuff. But I want to go back to what he said about one thing was like. Maybe if it only makes a little difference this year, don't worry about it. But I would submit, and I, he can, obviously I'll yield to him, is like little things over time change nature. I mean, the one thing that is indisputable, research or not, is nature evolves, period. 
I mean, put a bunch of pressure on your deer, watch them be 10 times more nocturnal, you know, and go on and on and on. Um, so I'd noticed that the, the, the turkeys we have at home came from over on the Mississippi River, which means they were likely descendants of the old, old original strain that I'm, when everything almost went extinct. I mean, that's plausible, don't you think, Doc? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they, I mean, it's just in general, they act so different than um, birds in other parts of the country, especially where they've been newer uh, in the lo- lo- relocating them there. And I just wonder if if there's any, you know, if you are to sh- always shoot the turkey that's most vocal over generations and generations, could you not change to where you end up evolving more to one that's less vocal or some that aren't at all? Yeah. Yeah, so even if that's just a theory, then my I would be sure. Of course, again, thirty seconds you might not get some all this up. If you can shoot, Daddy used to say, "Always don't." You know, I've had some people say, "Shoot that strutting turkey," because that means all the other ones will get to start gobbling now. And maybe there's some credence to that too. Maybe both of these things are true, just like Forrest Gump said, both of them. But he would always shoot shoot the turkey that hadn't been gobbling and leave the other one or two, whatever to enjoy for another hunt. And that was just his way of thinking about it. But it just seems to me, if you shoot the subdominant one, that's not gobbling, if you're sure that's the case, then you maybe are helping your genetics. Yeah, the biggest thing is you may have more success in nesting because that one's breeding more actively and is more experienced at, you know, getting hens pregnant, which is great. But it just occurred to me, you know, the hardest turkeys to hunt, maybe it's just hunting pressure too, that, you know, ours tend to stay in big groups and there will always be every year. I'm so disappointed by the number of turkeys I know we have that aren't vocal at all. And I just wondering if, if, you know, there's something to that, that uh, it's not an overnight thing, but over time, have we kind of bred a less goblin and active turkey? Because I know I go to some other places and wow, they're so much more vocal and more, a higher percentage of the male toms or turkeys are, are more vocal than ours. So anyway, just a thought. Did he say Tom's? What's a what's a Tom? <laughs> what's a Tom? I was going to ask the Doc that. But yeah, there there has Guilty. been research showing you know on other species, um, for instance, on largemouth bass, showing that that basically you can select against aggressive fish because you catch them. So you you have these behavioral personalities, if you will. Certain fish are extremely aggressive. They'll attack almost any lure. They get caught out. And through time, you select for a less aggressive fish. Um, there's work on other species showing the same. In fact, these they're called behavioral syndromes, but it's just research on personalities. There's a lot of research worldwide ongoing. In fact, I have a I have a student that's in my lab now, that's his, that's his stick. That's what he's really interested in is, is understanding how these, these birds have different personalities. And we've studied it pretty extensively with hens, less so with, with toms or, or gobblers if, to get Toxie back on, on board. But um, yeah, I mean, there's absolutely a distinct possibility that, that through time you would select against vocal toms because you're removing well, them from the population and you're selecting for toms that don't gobble as much and and there's no question that our gobbling data shows this that basically 
you know, on these heavily hunted public lands anyway, gobbling activity just tanks by the second week of the season. And that's not just all the vocal birds are dead. That's certainly not the case. It's that a lot of the birds that are surviving are shutting up. They're changing their behavior. So, you know, if you do this through generations, multiple generations, it is logical to think that at some point it will it will have an influence on future generations of birds and how they behave because you've selected for or against certain traits through time. I'm just saying, like too, Doc, that if you shoot a lot of the dominant birds too, I'm just thinking, say so you've got a pretty good sized place and you know a fair amount of turkeys, and you shoot more of the dominant ones, and there's like more of the ratio, there's more or less dominant birds to a few really dominant birds, those few can really shut up a bunch if there's not anybody to challenge them. You know, it seems like it would be a more healthy breeding and goblin atmosphere to have a lot of dominant birds challenging each other and wanting to fight and squabble over hens and whatever, you know, it would seem to be. Then if you have nothing but just a few dominant birds, it might really be a bad situation, but I'll let you speak to that. Well, yeah, I mean, the way they're supposed to function is, you know, you're supposed, in an ideal world, you'd have at least on, say, a large piece of property, you'd have multiple breeding groups of toms. So you'd have a group over here that's got three or four birds, a group over there that's got three or four birds, two over here, three over there. And within each one of those groups, there is a dominant bird. So on this one piece of property, you may have four or five groups of, of toms. So you got four or five dominant toms that are doing most of the breeding. You're probably going to have some single birds that are by themselves. And research has shown they breed very little. Uh, they do breed, but they don't breed as much as dominant birds. So in that scenario, if you're a hen and you're on this property, you've got access to multiple dominant birds. And that is a fitness advantage for you because you could breed with more than one of them. And then that increases the fitness of your clutch because you've got sperm from a multiple dominant birds, not just one. So, so yeah, this, this notion that they're supposed to function like that, that is the way they're supposed to function. And then at some point, they become irrelevant as to their social status because breeding has been completed or is largely completed. And at that point, it really, it really doesn't matter who you shoot, as long as you don't shoot too many, you know, too great a proportion of the population, then by the following year, those those dominance hierarchies are sorted back out and there's new dominant birds that have proven themselves and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Got, I got one more quick one. I got to have another one. He made me think again. So <laughs> in your opinion, I had, I had to leave a bird that I would, so I could have a few birds. And I'm thinking about the Alabama season. They moved it back 10 days, but it goes into the first week or 10 days of May now. And so what's the best chance you would have a bird still being vocal and fun to hunt at that super late stage? Would it be one of the subdominant ones that never had anything to say? And since it quieted down, he might gobble, or would it be probably one of the dominant ones that, Ran out of hens, so to speak. Which what would be the best chance to have a bird that was still vocal really late? I honestly don't know how to answer that. I, I think a lot in a lot of ways it would depend on his experiences that season. If he had been heavily pressured and had been through the game a number of times, he regardless of where he stands in the pecking order, he's probably right. not going to be that vocal. I, I think 
I don't really know if it matters late in the season like that. What we tend to see late in the season is that, and I don't know who these turkeys are, but we see flare-ups in gobbling activity. So we'll see three or four or five days of nothing, like literally silence. And then all of a sudden one day, you know, there's one bird at one of our listening devices or nearby that is just roaring. Just now what caused that? I don't know. Did he encounter a hen that the day before that was receptive? I don't know what's going on, but who that is socially, I don't have any idea, but that's kind of what the goblin yeah. looks like, which we experience. You all, we all, if you hunt late in the season, you know, you've been in that scenario uh, where day after day, it sucks. And then one day it's like, man, where'd all these turkeys come from? You know? Yeah. You know, it's exactly, it seems to be a little more weather dependent than it gets really hot and muggy. It really shut them down a lot too. So yeah, uh, definitely experienced that uh, in the last year. Don't you think too, they're gobbling, some of that gobbling at the end is just turkeys getting back together because that's, you know, let's face it, when it's over with, they're all buddies again. They're all looking to get back together. They won't have anything to do with a hen after that. So do you think some of the real late gobbling is get, locating each other and getting back together? It could be. I think probably a lot of it is associated with toms that are seeing hens again that haven't been around them because they've been incubating nests and they've lost those nests. And I got you. And they're they the toms think they're receptive, although they may not be. And I think in some ways it mimics the ramp up we see in March, where toms start gobbling, but the hens aren't receptive. I think some of that happens late in the season too, where they start seeing hens again and they haven't been around them, and so they start their testosterone increases and they start they start gobbling. Here we go again. Here we go again. <laughs> yeah so landy I, you, I, you look like you're about to bust oh always i love talking about turkeys you know well, come on ask him a question yeah uh, doc could you just kind of and and this is my question I, and i look on the list of, of people that have submitted questions and our our buddy buddy at uh, david holly at the wild turkey report has this same question so could you just kind of you know walk us through uh the flock behavior that's happening now and how it will transition throughout the season ultimately ended up uh, when the broods hatch or is that too much to ask? <laughs> no, I, I mean, it, it's pretty straightforward. So right now we're, you know, we're in the middle of about to be in the middle of February and the birds you're seeing are in distinct winter flocks. Those, those winter flocks um, are sex specific in that you see hens that are together. There's usually some jakes hanging around them. And then you've got flocks of toms that are by themselves that you may see them around the flocks of hens, but they're not really interacting with each other. They may strut and display right now, particularly on warmer days, but those winter flocks are intact. They're moving around looking for food. And then in about a month, you're going to start seeing those winter flocks split up into smaller social groups. What we're finding is that within those social groups of hens, so let's say you go from 20 hens in a winter flock now to four groups of five in mid-March. Those four groups of five are typically going to be hens that are not related to each other, which is pretty interesting. Um, it is. That if you make, if you think about it, makes sense from the standpoint of you've got You've got a group of hens that are not sisters, 
that are going to breed with dominant toms in their home range. So when they go incubate a nest, they're not probably going to be near a close relative of theirs. They're going to be removed from close relatives. And then, so those hens will breed with a dominant bird or multiple dominant birds. They'll other times, sometimes single birds that are by themselves will, will sneak in breeding opportunities too. And regardless, the hens become solitary. They start laying. When they're laying, they're still hanging around with other hens, but they'll start sneaking off for more time each day, laying an egg in the clutch. They'll start spending time at the nest during the laying sequence when they, they're kind of sitting there, actually incubating the nest for an hour or so at a time. And then they start continuous incubation. They're loners. This is when, you know, this is during our turkey seasons. You see one hen, she's by herself. If she fails and she quits for the year, then she goes and finds other hens and she flocks back up, which that's not what you want to see, say, in May. If you're seeing groups of three and four hens in May, that's a bad sign. If she's lucky enough to hatch, then she spends the first couple of weeks with her brood alone. Um, during that time, they become very close in a relationship standpoint. They imprint to her. They grow very rapidly. And then she starts interacting with other brood hens. And they form those large summer flocks that we hope to see every year that have three hens and 15 poults or four hens and 20 poults. And those are the groups in the summer that then become the winter flocks we're seeing right now. That's what I call sunshine. <laughs> really helps me just thinking about that whole process, you know, what they're going through and the whole perspective to give you perspective on what to do. Yeah. Now, uh, Doc, I hate to do this to you, but I think Max got a question. Max uh -oh. got more than one. Good talking to you, sir. <laughs> Here it comes the hurricane. I know. Uh, really, my, I've always been interested on how weather affects the goblin patterns. And from looking at your website, it was, I, I read the article about, you know, the barometric pressure and how the warmer days in the Southern turkeys, they might not gobble as much, but say you're looking at a five day forecast and it is just mild early season, you know, mid March, uh, early April, what do you see as far as the goblin activity, say, for like day one through three? And do they taper off? Do they gobble the same, you know, back-to-back -back days? Or, or, or kind of, I guess, how does that goblin activity change uh, when all conditions are the same? Yes, yeah, so that article you're referencing, what we, so the important thing to, to know in that, in that data set was, the positive relationship between gobbling and barometric pressure. In other words, expect to hear more gobbling as barometric pressure is rising. That's only related to the day before. So when, when you have a scenario where a frontal system passes and you have that, that day after the passage when the barometric pressure is rising relative to the day before, gobbling was in was higher so across a multiple day period that relationship wouldn't necessarily hold if that makes sense mag it the it was versus the day before 
that was the the impactful part of the the analysis. Basically, that's where the data were the clearest that when the barometric pressure is rising as a frontal passage occurs, that's when you should expect gobbling compared to the day before to be dramatically higher. That makes sense. Yeah. It's really interesting. I tell you, Doc, the the being able to apply this uh the science that you guys have learned and uh that y'all explained to us to hunting scenarios really kind of does help make things when you think back on experiences that you've had through your life, you go, Well, that's what Makes that was sense. all about. That's right. But there's one that that you've explained to us about if you went to a roof site and hunted a particular bird three or four mornings in a row, that it logically might not be the same bird every time. I've had a hard time wrapping my mind around that because I've just always thought it was the same bird. He's just doing something different. I get people to argue with me about this as much as anything other than spur length being a reliable way to age a bird. But I don't really know how any how else to, to say this, but we have a number of examples where Tom's wearing GPS units leave tom a leaves his roost site he flies down in the morning he moves out of the area and tom b comes that afternoon and roost in the exact same spot where tom a was the day before and we see this routinely and if you you, you guys know as well as i do and if you've spent any time in the same general area hunting turkeys for say a decade you know there are just certain places that turkeys roost and why they're there versus some other spot, we don't really understand entirely. But there are just some spots that are better roosting habitat. They are safer. They project sound better. Uh, birds can access hens and they know it. So it does stand. It makes sense to me that if you've got a population of male, the, these toms are spending time around each other. They all know where these roost sites are. So if you're moving about your range and you don't hear your buddy, then maybe you go check that roost site out. And if it's vacant, you use it. And uh, I think personally, some of this afternoon gobbling that you may, that you hear sometimes, I personally think that some of that is just Tom's checking up on each other. They're just trying to see who's around, <laughs> but we see numerous examples of this and it begs the question that day that that bird flew down and he went west you come back in the next morning and you anticipate that move and he goes east and you think to yourself i must have screwed that up he hurt he didn't like that tree yelp he heard me walk in he whatever maybe you're overthinking it maybe that was literally a different bird who just had a different agenda that day his buddy that had the agenda that had West the day before is gone. He's two miles down the road. That's what the data suggests. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting because I've, I've had that crap happen to me a lot. And when I was younger, I would get so frustrated. In fact, I can remember as like a, a grad student thinking how bad I sucked because I was studying turkeys and I could not reliably kill one i would go and just and i'd be like he just did that yesterday he must have heard me 
he didn't like that call. He didn't like that fly down. He didn't like, he heard me walking in the leaves. He heard me crunching gravel. He heard, and I would think of 50 excuses for why, how I screwed that up. And it eroded my confidence to the point where at the end of the season, I'd have to have a mental reset. I would overthink everything. And now thinking back through the years, I should have just had a little more fun and, and realized that maybe he heard me crunch the leaves. Maybe he realized something was wrong, or maybe it wasn't even the same turkey. Maybe he was just, you know, maybe he, yeah. my buddy that I'd hunted two days in a row was down on the two properties down. And now he's, you know, he's giving the backdoor treatment to somebody else on two farms down that he was, mm. eating, you know. Um, I always just blame Lanny. It, yeah. That always seemed to work out for me. You, you seem to do that with lots of things in life. Yeah. It does that, work that, out. That. Right. <laughs> well, that's just interesting. And, and you know, when I'm hunting, I'm pretty uh, – I pay attention to my watch. When I'm sitting there in the morning and I hear that first gobble, no matter where it is, I, I'm kind of marking on my watch. And then as the season goes by, you know, it gets a little earlier every morning. But it it, it boy, that it, just, it amazes me how they seem to know it. 621 that's when we're going to start gobbling mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. and so other birds know that too if it if, if you know from yeah. what we're talking about and they're there all the time that's yeah. right I mean, for me it's crazy the days that uh you're just about to get up and go somewhere else because it's long past gobbling time and they start you know 20 yeah. minutes later than they do so uh i've never been able to set a watch bomb much bobby i'm telling you not much. One, one thing I'm really interested in, I have a student that that is digging into these data, and I really can't wait for him to to come up with some findings so I can show it to people. Is these how variable are toms in their roosting behavior? In other words, are there some that fly down pretty consistently in the morning? Are there some that fly down later? Are how predictable are their movements once they fly down? So within an individual bird, does he tend to head in only in certain directions from his roost? Is it more random? And how much does that vary across a group of birds? Because what we're seeing with the hen data is if you plot out like incubation behaviors or or behaviors while she's laying, it literally, it's like you have Bird one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And there's this continuum of behaviors. And I just wonder whether, I think toms are going to be the same way. And I think what we're going to end up seeing, maybe I'll, I'll be wrong, is that there's so much variation that you have no idea what you're going to encounter. That that maybe there are some birds, to Toxie's point, maybe there's some birds, I've, I've hunted birds that didn't fly down on time. and it, I've often thought maybe I spooked them or maybe they they figured out something was wrong and they stayed in the tree. But I'm also wondering whether there's just some birds that are wired different in these populations and they just behave differently. They they have a strategy that's worked for them and they follow the script until they die of old age or they get shot or get eaten by a predator or whatever it is. And if so, that maybe some of what we're seeing is is not us really. It's just them it's just they're just variable in the way they behave and at i'm really curious to see the roosting data because roost data to me are so cool i'm so fascinated by it because if you think about it you got a 20 pound bird that sleeps in a tree and 
they don't roost everywhere. They only roost in certain places in their home range. So those places are money. Like that's, think about it. They spend all night, they're defenseless yeah. in this spot because that is, in their mind, that is the best place to hunker down all night. It's also the best place to project your sound. It's the best place to be close to hens. Their roof sites are gold to me. So understanding what goes on in their in their mind and how they how they use roof sites to me is really fascinating. And as a turkey hunter, that's where we start our day. You know, I mean, yeah. that's where we start the, the game is at that roof site or nearby. It's just fascinating. And I've, I've got I have one student, well, actually two now that are really interested in the roosting data. And that's actually our strongest data set that we have. We have roost locations on every bird we've ever tracked every night. So it's it's the creme de la creme of the data sets. We have literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of roost locations. I just have to have somebody ready to go through the data. And luckily, I have two folks now that are that are super interested in it. How much will that home range vary you're talking about? Is it resource driven or... Um... Do you see a lot of variability just over a geographical landscape? Both. Yeah. Yeah. You do see a lot of differences in range sizes across the subspecies, which you would expect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Easterns tend to have smaller home ranges than some of your, some of your Western subspecies that, that have to travel, you know, to get from foraging areas to roost sites. Um, and And we also see a, ton of variation within a population say of easterns just across individual birds there's some birds that just have a small home range and there's some birds that just have a large home range and when you look at kind of what could be influencing it it doesn't appear to be habitat it doesn't appear to be things that we can kind of put our finger on it's just I I personally think that there are just personalities. There yeah, are, just preferences. Yeah, there's just certain birds that have a strategy that involves not moving much, and and they can make it work because there's resources there. And there's other birds that even if the resources are there, their personality cover more ground. Makes sense, Doctor Mike. I got I got a lot of questions, but one back to the roost data. Do you find that long beards, and I guess what I'm asking is, do hens roost together or in a same roost location more than, say, like a group of long beards, or like do the, do the males roost together more or the females roost together more from your from your data? It depends on the timing of the year. So, so like right now, they're all together. You know, I mean, you you've got groups of hens that are roosting together. Uh, you've got groups of toms that are roosting together. But as the spring approaches, when they split up into those small social groups, they they are roosting close to each other, not necessarily on top of each other, but close to each other. And then I, I don't know the answer to this question, but one of the students that's digging into this will have answers soon. It appears that they start altering their lay, uh, their roosting when they start laying. And that would make sense to me that they would start perhaps distancing themselves from other hens and roosting in areas 
that maybe they haven't roosted in before because they're they're now tethered to that nest site. In other words, they can only move a certain distance away from it because they have to get back to it each day to lay. So I think it just depends on the time of year because at that same time, as you know, let's say that's the first week of April, it's routine to have, you know, toms that are roosting together. Um, but what I've also noticed, and the roost data bear this out, is roosting together isn't always they're on top of each other. They may be on the same ridge and they are several hundred yards apart and they fly down and they end up together an hour later, not necessarily roosted together, but they were close enough to be able to hear each other. You were talking earlier about how gobblers move from roost area to roost area in the spring. They don't always roost in the same trees. Uh, are the hens doing the same, or is it generally like these three hens stay in the same area, and then a, another subgroup stays in that? In that, I don't know. We haven't. We have not until very recently started digging into the hen roost data. Our initial for obvious reasons, interest was in the, you know, the males. I mean, we wanted to know what these toms were doing and, and that's the sexier, you know, that's the sexier sure. stuff to begin with. But like I said, it, it took me getting someone in my lab that was interested in the hen roosting data to be able to start teasing it out. So I'll be able to answer that soon. He, that's good. We're still finding stuff to, <laughs> you know, Oh, we could, we could sit, I mean, was, right now we've got, you know, several thousand birds worth of GPS data and we've got well over a thousand, let's see, for each subspecies, we're, you know, in the 2000 plus nest range, uh, hundreds of broods, tens of millions of GPS locations. I could retire, I could quit tomorrow and not hire another student and employ people for the next decade that did nothing but work on data. And we'd never even, I mean, there would still be information there that we can't tap into. And I, I'm not going to do this right now, but at some point we'll make these data available to people, to other researchers so they can, so they can use it because it it has potential to help the bird if they're when I'm gone from this you know this this job and I move on to other other things in my life that that I care about somebody needs to go back and take the data that are still going to be sitting then and do something with them because they're impactful and they could we're just Dudley we're just we're trying to scratch the surface now on the big the big things that are either super interesting to the agencies. I mean, the, the bottom line is they're paying us to do contract work and they tell us what they want to know and we, we're we paid to answer them. So some of the things that you that we're talking about here is irrelevant to an agency. You know, they, they don't care about roost fidelity and, and whether the same group of hens, you know, does that behavior whereas you and i think that's just the coolest thing you know so i'm in this constant balancing act where i'm challenging my students and my postdocs to produce products that the agencies are paying for because we that's our job 
and also generating content that everyone else that matters wants to see. And that that's, and I work, my people, you know, I love my students. I love my staff and they work really hard for me and they do it because they, they respect me and, but they also cherish the bird and, and they want to know all this stuff too. So they're pulling double duty there. You know, they're doing their day jobs and then they're still, you know, I shoot an email out on Saturday. I'm like, Hey, what about a social media post on this? And it's like, okay, I'll do that in my spare time. I'll, <laughs> I'll generate you a map. Um, so that's actually why you'll see me lay off of some of the maps and things like that at times, because it's, it's a lot of work for my, my folks to produce that content and, I need to leave, leave them alone sometimes and let them do their jobs. <laughs> For sure. So, Mike, we got got a little bit of good news. I think uh, back when all that cold weather was happening, you and I were exchanging some texts, and we were, I was showing you how these the plots over here in this part of the world just just got burnt so bad by that cold weather. I'm just getting text after text every day with people saying, my clover's coming back. Clover's doing good, and, yeah. And it's just so relieving to to know that that stuff is popping back up from the root system out there because I think clover is something I think everybody would agree. It's a, it, it's, it can be a big part of a bird's diet. And it, the, as gamekeepers, that's a good thing for guys to have established on their property is a good perennial clover plot. Right? No question. Yeah, we we see extensive use of clover right now, and that use will continue all the way until it burns in the summer. In fact, yeah. we, we see a lot of brood use of clover patches, uh, particularly those, and I've mentioned this on podcasts with you before, particularly ones that had cereal grains like wheat or oats mixed in, and those wheat or oats grow up and they turn brown with seed on them. Uh, three-week-old and older poults that are, are fairly large and are, are mobile and can flutter up onto those, those old stalks. Uh, if you watch turkeys move through those clover patches, they'll flush insects, and a lot of times those insects will fly up onto those stalks of oats or wheat, and the birds can hop off the ground and grab, you know, can grab the insects. So we see a lot of, of use of clover from December on into even June in the deep South. So critical plant. And when you sent me that text, I remember responding to you and saying, gosh, that's awful because my plots here, knock on wood, did not burn like that. And there was some yellowing, but most of the yellowing was in the cereal grains and not in the clover. So the last time I checked our plots here, they're beautiful. So I'm, I'm optimistic. So, Mike, have you ever heard of somebody putting out crickets in the spring of the year, going to the bait shop and buying 5,000, 10,000 crickets? Uh, you got to get that many crickets delivered. Don't give anybody any ideas. Yeah, we, we, we've heard a rumor of a guy doing this. Have you ever heard of that? I have not, but you just – so my daughter – it's a funny story. My daughter hates crickets. <laughs> and the reason she does is because I took her and Austin – to a camp years ago and it was infested with crickets when i say infested i mean the poor thing was laying on a bunk bed with my lab and they are covered in crickets crickets everywhere all over the sleeping bags everywhere of course austin and i we didn't care we you know we slept get up go hunt but she still to this day is traumatized by a cricket if she sees a cricket 
she she's like, I don't want to touch that. I don't want to hear. <laughs> so under that scenario, you just played out. I could see my my daughter being utterly traumatized by the notion of somebody releasing five thousand. <laughs> Yeah. Supplemental, yeah, supplemental feeding. That's yeah, well, I'm just just curious. So, <laughs> so I ate a cricket. Yep. I had a, I had a gunnery sergeant at Quantico Marine Corps Base. I was a technician there, and if you know any, if you've ever been around gunnery sergeants, they're they're a special type of person. Well, he was a character, absolute character, and um, he saw these crickets that we had. We were trying to fish in one of the ponds on the base, and as you can imagine, you know, access is pretty tightly controlled on Quantico. So there's certain places we could go fish and certain places we couldn't, but we hadn't caught crap. I mean, we had nothing. So we had this huge container of crickets and he reaches in the container and throw, appears to throw this cricket in his mouth. And I started laughing at him and, and we called him Gunny. And I said, Gunny, you didn't eat that cricket. Come on, man. He goes, yes, I did. He grabs another one. And it, it, I think he's throwing it past his head. So I, after four or five, he's like, what do you want me to do to prove this? I said, I want you to eat that where I can see it. So he ate this cricket <laughs> and he said, try one. And I said, I'm not eating that. And he, so he starts in on, as you can imagine, with some of the terminology that he yeah, used. probably, probably quite convincing. Yeah. Um, so I <laughs> ate one and then I ate another one. It, they actually have this nutty kind of rich flavor. If you can get past the texture, and there was no alcohol involved. In it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I know, I know Dudley's eating one. Uh I was gonna no. Have you I? haven't have you not eaten a cricket? I've eaten an ant. Yeah, he tastes everything. I was just gonna say. Oh well well look, we know Mike's gotta go. We appreciate you being here with us, Mike. But before we let you go, we want Dudley's got a little wants to rapid fire no, a few rapid questions fire. to you. So Time. rapid fire is brought to you by our friends friends at springfield armory and uh i'm gonna turn it over to dudley and mike i'm uh i think we've done this before but you're on zoom so it may be a little more difficult but uh i'm gonna try to be quick with the questions and i want you to try to be quick with the answers um and you can say neither or both uh if you'd like Bye. okay all right are you ready yes all right okay. cheryl teagues or farrah farrah fawcett Faucet. Waffles wow. or pancakes? Waffles. Turkey Tur meat or deer meat? Meat. Deer. <laughs> <laughs> Box call or trumpet? Neither. Mouth call or pot call? Mouth. What's worse on a long hunt? Feet wet right out of the boat or forgot your snack? Oh, feet wet. <laughs> April or December? April all day long. May or November? Oh, I'm going to go November there. All right, there you go. Good answer. Uh, favorite person, Marcus Lashley or Bronson Strickland? Just kidding. You don't have to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> trying to get me in trouble. Uh, shoulder mount or Euro mount? Shoulder. Pecan or pecan? Ah, this is loaded question. <laughs> All right, that's it. <laughs> good job. <laughs> did good. Oh, well, Watson's no. going to be upset that I didn't answer that. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to be upset. Yeah, yeah. He's going to say neither. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Or both. 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. one of my very closest friends. So um, I did, I couldn't answer that and be disrespectful to Marcus, who I have a lot of respect for. But Bronson, uh, and I, we're very close. All in all good in, fun. Yeah, we love them it, both. It was. So look, I, and as we like to do with you, we've got one more. We've got a trivia question, and uh, you might, you've got a chance to make your wife proud here, Mike. And I'm going to turn it over to uh, to Mac. Go ahead. All right, so this one's right up your alley, Dr. Mike. So you're playing for Michael Cates. Uh, the get is He left us a really nice review, and the prize is a wood duck nesting box by Duck Hut. And don't ask me where I got it. All right, so in a movie we all love, Smokey and the Bandit, Snowman, played by Jerry Reed, had a canine co-pilot. What was his name? Fred. Okay. He nailed it. Wow. <laughs> All right. And Bobby threw one uh one bonus question in here for you. What was the bandit's license plate? Bandit one. Yeah, that's yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. So answering that, I'm gonna I'm gonna send to Mike this raccoon baculum. Baculum. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's a nice way to put it. That's a, that was that was you had that not last week, didn't you? We did. We had, Mike, we ate a raccoon last week, or I should say, we cooked a raccoon and then we looked at it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Ugh. we ate it. Yeah, yeah, raccoon yeah, tacos. We we didn't eat it. I I didn't eat it. I mean, I tried a bite of it. I just couldn't make myself. <laughs> did you swap? <laughs> it's just strong to me. It, it's got a really strong flavor. I think. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I don't want that baculum, so you can. You can do <laughs> uh, we'll give that away. He's next been stirring week, his so. coffee with it every morning. He uses it too thick. Yeah. So uh, I would like to say that Mac, there's a sentence on there about the dog Fred, about Burt Reynolds, why Burt Reynolds picked him out. Yeah, so he uh, was personally picked out by Burt Reynolds, uh, chiefly because he, it refused to obey commands. Ah, it's a I, hound dog. Yeah, I thought that was funny. Yeah, yeah of course, plays the role right. Pretty- Fred was pretty comical. Yeah, that's good. Well, Mike, we enjoy having you when you're here, uh, and and we certainly want to help you every chance we get. We get, and uh, we'll be there at the NWTF, uh, able to lock arms with you and and help uh, spread the message. Yeah, exactly. Spread the word. WildTurkeyLab.com. Yep. There it is. Well, there we go, it, guys. It's good joining you as always. See you soon. Yeah, well, yeah. we need to, and and uh, and Tox is still on here, and I, I'm I'm going to ask this. We really need to take you turkey hunting because uh, I just think it's something we need to do. Bobby, thank you. I, I would love to go with you. <laughs> <laughs> Lord, Lord have mercy. It, it all gets turned around. Oh, quick draw. <laughs> yeah, it does. I mean, we need to hear Mike yelp. Yeah, we do. Yeah, I'm always game. I'm always game. Best time of year is about to be upon us. It sure it is. is. The season of rebirth. Yes, sir. Amen to that. All right. Well, Mike, you got anything else to add? Nope. I'm good. I'm good. Just remember, slow down. Slow down. That's right. Time yep. breathe. Enjoy, Enjoy the rebirth. Yes. That's for sure. Yes. It's, sure. it's special. We'll see you. We'll be we'll see him at the 50th convention of the National Wild Turkey Federation next week. Quite a run. Yeah, lots yeah. going on up there. Yeah, yeah looking Basically, forward to yeah. it. It's going to be busy. It is. It is. It is, it is. It is. It is. the busiest one we've ever had, hands down. It's going to be chaos, but I'm looking forward to it. Me too. Well, I'll see y'all there. Okay. Thanks, Mike. All right, Mike. You the man. So, guys, we 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 always 
talk you know we have yeah. these these professors these doctors on here and we always learn so much and sometimes it's about the species mm-hmm. but uh, yeah I, i'll tell you there's don't gloss over his comment about slow down oh 100 i can tell you i mean toxic chiming in it's the older you get Lanny, yeah. Lanny, you looking long in the tooth. Uh, let me tell you now, there's a lot of wisdom in those words. And and uh, I, I, specifically to turkey hunting, I do remember, you know, years and years ago where it was just this fast-paced run and gun. We all talked about it. It's what we want to do. And you often miss the little nuances that make the time of the year so special. So, you know, it's about being out there to Toxie's point. You've taught me more than anybody the rebirth of everything in the spring. So think about this. We're all a part of nature, too. We're, we are it's just a fact. Right. and so there's something about getting out there and participating in it and being part of it. not just like you know killing something it's no. just, that's that's great i love doing it but i'm just saying when you kind of become part of it it just does something to your whole you know your health your whatever spiritual well-being sure. everything uh to connect to what's going on in the world because nature and all this stuff that drives you know the world we live on is waking up and it is amazing. Absolutely yep. amazing. I can hear the birds chirping behind you. Yeah, you can. That's right. <laughs> They're getting more vocal every day. It's 70 yeah. degrees today, so I'll probably hear a turkey in the morning. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I sure wouldn't. It wasn't, but about maybe two weeks ago, one Saturday morning, I was deer hunting, and I heard some turkeys gobble a couple times where I couldn't hunt them. I'm looking down there in Mac, but he won't look back at me, so I think he might have some top-secret information. <laughs> He's not even he just yeah. Got two things I need to say right quick. Hey, one, I love you guys. Two, see you guys. <laughs> Ciao. See you. See you May first. Yeah. yeah. Oh. <laughs> Lord, I think he kind of cut out on that last one. Uh, I love it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but but you know, g- kind of going back, what what did we learn? I I, I would say that that's pretty important, guys. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, the, the whole slowdown thing, I've, I've never really been accused of going too fast, especially in the woods, but, uh, I'm on, I'm on, I damn to, sure have, I'm going <laughs> I'm to try to slow down even more this year. Yeah. You are deadly. You're, you're really good at reflecting in, in small and seeing the small stuff. You really are. So kudos to you. Well, I may need to speed up a little bit. Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah that's true. Dude, you're missing out on the yeah, you're, you're missing out on what's around the corner. Yeah, <laughs> probably need to try to kill us. I'm running off what's around turn. the corner. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So, look, we appreciate everybody listening. And, uh, look, give us a review if you get a chance. So, so hit the subscribe button. That's really important, and we would appreciate that. And share it with your friends. And I think, Mac, you know, before we go, we we need to uh, talk about these spring protein peas again. Oh, yeah. So we've got a free shipping pre-sale on our spring protein peas. It's iron and clay and mung beans. Uh, it's a 20-pound bag, covers a half acre, 75% digestible nutrients, 25% crude protein, and over 8,500 pounds of forage per acre. Yeah. Uh, it's it's limited limited quantity uh, right now. Uh, there was a drought this past year during the growing Hard season. Hard to get seed. So uh, we did a pre-sale on it. So get them while you can. And I do have one more thing I want to give a shout out to, Mr. Ricky Flint. Oh, yeah. Uh, on his retirement. That's yeah. right. Oh, no. So he took a new role. Uh, he's, it's like in the conservation fund Yeah, so he's the he's ju- he started, I think, on February 1st as the project manager for the Mississippi Outdoor Stewardship Trust Fund. 
So, I mean, congratulations that's to him. Big. I mean, that's he's perfect for the job. I mean, he's all about the outdoor stewardship and, I mean, conservation. What a great guy and what a great part, you know, of, of MDWF. Higgins, my favorite agency, of course, but uh, just a great guy and a great career. Uh, and now he's going to keep on uh, working to get that funding we need for these wildlife. So that's good stuff. Yeah, Ricky's a great guy. What what else? You, you, one more thing. One more thing. Never okay. mind. No, I'm, no, never mind. No, I was no, going to no. talk more about spring protein peas, but I'm beating a, a dead bush here. Yeah, uh, beating a Be- what? Beating a dead horse. Well, they're not horse. just good for deer. They're really good for upland birds and rabbits and everything else. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is the month of February. Go ahead and, you know, think about your food plots now uh, and what you want to plant in the spring. Again, because of the limited supply of the seed, we wanted to go ahead and make it available to everybody. Uh, so it's going to be hard to get. So yeah, jump on there and check it out uh, and get some free shipping right now. So plantbiologic.com. Yeah. And it's also good for the soil. Yeah. It's a, yeah. So, yep. all right, guys. Well, that's been good. Richie, have you got anything? Glad to see you sitting over there and uh, awake. stayed awake. The whole time. <laughs> that's, that's good. So it's about to get really busy around here for the next uh Ooh, we got two, a lot months, of, so. now i'm gonna go ahead and tell you y'all go ahead and get all your honeydews done i know i've got a massive list of things to get done between uh deer season and turkey season bobby i can see the worry on your eyes too you've got a lot of stuff to do around the house uh so yes get out there and up. get them honeydews done so you can oh, hunt. last but not least guys and there's probably nobody still listening to this now, now after we're rambling on for 75 but minutes today <laughs> is valentine's day you need to go when this what? releases, this will be this oh, will I thought release so, yeah. on February 14th. <laughs> uh, don't forget store. about it. You need to go get some, uh, you know, whatever Good advice. Good yeah. advice. So this one will actually come out the week of NWTF. So don't get an exercise machine like Bobby did yeah, a couple of years ago. The only man that's ever given his wife an exercise machine and gotten away with it. Yeah, I, that was a Christmas present, and it was well-received. Shame. <laughs> Shame, for real. I know what that thing means now. Yeah, okay. <laughs> All right, well, uh, looking around, why don't uh, you say goodbye, Dudley? Goodbye, Dudley. Get us out of here, Mac Mac. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Gamekeeper Podcast, and be sure to tune in again. Subscribe to Gamekeeper Farming for Wildlife magazine, and don't miss the Mossy Oak Properties Fistful of Dirt podcast with my good buddy, Ronnie Cuz Strickland.